because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by our Yahoo News colleague, Andrew Romano. Andrew, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So a lot of time we have all spent watching the Democrats uh, do their virtual convention this week. Uh, Andrew, do you think it was a successful convention for the D's? I think so. Yeah. I mean, we were, this was our first virtual convention. No one knew what to expect. I think there was a lot of, especially in the media, which is always looking for tension, conflict problems. There was a lot of speculation that uh, something would go terribly awry. There'd be technical glitches that distracted from the message. And I think it, it went really smoothly. Beyond that, I think you know, they presented a pretty compelling case for their candidate and against the incumbent president. So, yeah, I mean, going into this, it was unexpected, but I think they pulled it off. So I want to dig in uh, a little more deeply into the kind of two aspects of the convention. One is the kind of atmospherics and the production of a virtual convention, and then talk maybe a little bit about some of the underlying political substance. But on the first one, what was interesting to me was the ways in which a virtual convention where you didn't have the crowds and the fanfare and the balloons dropping and all of that was actually an advantage for some of the speeches. And and even, I thought, some of the kind of awkwardness and snafus were sort of oddly humanizing. A lot of people were commenting on uh, that moment after Biden was officially put in nomination and um, he didn't quite know what to do, kind of milling around a little bit. But I don't know. I thought that was kind of oddly charming. So, Andrew, tell us about your view of just the kind of, again, the kind of atmospherics of of this convention and and what impact you think it had. Yeah, I, I think humanizing is a good word for it. You know, having gone to a bunch of conventions, you guys have, have gone to more. It's a little, you know, I don't experience them on television usually. I'm usually in the hall, so it's a totally different feeling. But this felt, you know, watching it at home, streaming it, it felt that there was a kind of intimacy to it, that the stories from real people, which are always kind of part of the convention, they seem to get lost on the big stage. This was close up. I think you could really feel sort of the force of the case that people were making, the emotion that they brought to it. I think some of the speakers pulled that off as well. Michelle Obama obviously stood out in that regard. She was able to sort of speak directly to the camera in a way that I think, if that had been a big speech on a stage, it might not have worked. It might not have been as as powerful. Um, and so I thought, you know, far from being a minus, in a lot of cases, the, uh, the sort of format, the streaming virtual format was an advantage. And yeah, I think you're right. Those moments when there was a little stumble or someone wasn't quite sure where to look or they missed their cue. We've all been through that. We're all on Zoom calls all day. We know that we're sort of like stuck at home in the midst of a pandemic. And I think it just was relatable in that regard. We'll see 
you know, what happens with the Republican convention this week. Yeah. I'm very yeah. interested to, to yeah. look at that aspect of it, the sort of theatrical aspect of it. As well. just, so just on the on the substance, just a quick follow up here, just in terms of the pure political strategy and who the Democrats were trying to really reach out to in this convention, you wrote, I thought, a really interesting piece about that. And, you know, there was all this kind of mini controversy over some of the progressives not getting a lot of time. AOC got her minute and a half and that was it. Stacey Abrams was, you know, kind of an afterthought. But that's not who the Democrats were really targeting in this convention, you argue in your piece. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, if Bernie Sanders were the nominee, we would have seen a very different convention. The argument that he has been making for years is that the way to win is to create a new coalition to expand into a new base, to bring young voters, non-voters, hardcore progressives who've maybe sat out in the past because they're dissatisfied uh, in, inspire them, and, and thus through kind of progressive policy positions, you can kind of create a new electorate. Joe Biden, that's not the argument that, that he makes. And this wasn't the argument of this convention. Um, progressives, as you said, were kind of given short shrift. I think AOC spoke for 90 seconds. And what I wrote in the piece was that there is solid electoral math behind that. Um, when you look back at what happened in, from 2012 to 2016 to 2018, you see that there are essentially two groups that made a big difference. Probably the biggest one was people who switched their vote. People who switched their vote from Obama to Trump and people who switched from Trump to Democrats from 2012 to 2016 to the 2018 midterms. The reason Trump won, major reason Trump won, was because he took voters out of the Democratic column and brought them into his column. The reason Democrats won in 2018 was because they switched some voters back. There's a second group there too. These are voters of color who showed up for Obama, didn't show up for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I thought you could see in this convention, Democrats targeting those two groups. The first hour every night struck me as making uh, appeals to identity and equality that would inspire voters of color to come back to vote for Biden the way they'd voted for Obama. The second hour, you saw more of that crossover appeal. A lot of Republicans, national security figures, moderate Democrats speaking on that stage. And I, I thought that was kind of the two-pronged approach that Democrats took in this convention. So it does appear that the ratings were down from where they were in 2016 by about 18 to 20 percent. Perhaps that's not a big surprise. TV ratings, right. We don't know how many people are watching online. And obviously, people's viewing habits have changed quite a bit over the years. I did notice, though, that it was interesting and when you look at the TV ratings, more than half of the 22 million who I think uh, were uh, judged to have been watching on Wednesday night when the numbers went up, that was Harris gave her speech, Obama spoke, were MSNBC and CNN. They by far outstripped the networks, which tells me that at least, you know, a big chunk of the audience are probably political partisans, Democrats, uh, who are Biden voters to begin with. So I, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, there's still a lot that weren't watching on those two networks, but it seems to me that that's just something to, to wonder about, like, were they reaching the voters that they really wanted to reach? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. We're, we're going to launch a poll, I think, starting today and running over the weekend, where we recontact the people we, we polled before the Democratic Convention and ask them some, some questions about how the convention might have affected their views. So 
I'm, I'm very interested to get into that in a little more detail and see whether they were reaching people. I don't think we can tell from the, from the television ratings. Um, and anyway, I think that slice of the electorate that, that is persuadable is, is pretty small, right? So they right. don't have to reach the Fox News audience. They have to reach, you know, uh, whatever, 100,000 people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to flip the election back. So it's, it's yeah. maybe, maybe some of those people were watching. We'll see. Yeah. Now, that said, I thought, I thought Biden framed the election in exactly the right way and the most powerful way in that speech last night, you know, making it a, this is an election about empathy, about about science, about facts, about the truth. You know, that's, you know, the strongest argument one can make about Donald Trump, it seems to me. And uh, and Biden hit it really hard. Yeah, I mean, I it was interesting. I was joking with my wife last night about, about that. Actually, the, the convention had done a pretty successful job of like setting an extremely low bar. So on the one hand, you have them hammering the idea that like, the current president puts children in cages and separates them from the parents. Joe Biden doesn't. <laughs> the current yeah. president has let, you know, has uh, ignored coronavirus and now 170,000 people are dead. Joe Biden hasn't, right? Like they, they hammered the Trump negative so hard and then just presented Biden as a kind, empathetic, decent person. Um, and it'll really be interesting to see if, that's, if people buy that framing. Decency, that was the word of the night. You know, this strikes me as what finally happened with Joe Biden is that the man and the moment were aligned in a way that had not been the case going back to his first presidential run. I mean, I'm reminded every four years we all dip into Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes. And of course, a lot of that is about Joe Biden. I had forgotten this, but when he met his first wife's parents, Nelia's parents, who was tragically killed in that car accident, for the first time up in Syracuse at her house, I think the father, one of them asked him, basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, president. They looked at him and said, president of what? <laughs> president of the United States. And then he runs in 1988, and he didn't really know why he was running. And partly because of Joe Biden's extraordinary longevity, here he is in 2020, and you almost don't have to say why he's running. You know, so many people know who he is and so many people know, but they did. They hammered home that idea of decency. And I actually was talking to our colleague, Lauren Johnston, before this podcast, and she did raise an interesting question, which I wanted to ask you, and maybe this is something we can get at in our next poll. What does decency mean to voters these days? How is that kind of processed by, by people? I think we kind of, we know what it is, compassion, humility, just being a, a nice person. But does that resonate with young voters? Do Trump, how do Trump voters look at the word decency? Don't they think they're decent? Do they think that, you know, is there a kind of a shared understanding of that word? And how is that going to play out in this election? That's really interesting, yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, I think, yes, everyone thinks of themselves as being a decent person. I think the argument that, that Trump voters have made for Trump is not so much that he's decent, but he's, they know he's, he's kind of a bad guy, but he's their bad guy. He's going to fight on their behalf. He's going to lie, cheat, and steal, do whatever it takes to make sure that he protects America and protects them. So, I, you know, I think the question is what, what the broader electorate wants. Do they want that? Do they want the bad guy who's going to fight for them? Or is, are they ready for a, a decent guy? 
I mean, the argument Biden was making is that in America, our precedents should be decent. <laughs> and, and, and going to your point about trying to win back those Obama Trump voters, some of those are in the, are women in the suburbs who yeah. do care about decency yeah. and who don't like. I mean, when, when you ask those people who may still in some ways defend Trump, what they'll say is we wish he would he, we wish he would he would stop the tweeting. We wish he would stop the name calling. Right. And you, you have to wonder whether, right, it's this question of buyer's remorse, too, that they took a chance on Trump. They've seen four years. Of, and instead of unknown, they have the his, his first term here and they can judge him based on that. And, and they can say, is, you know, we took a chance. D- did he deliver what we wanted? And I think it's a, that's why this is a very different election than 2016. So we got the Republicans next week. What is the Republican play? What's their message next week to counter what the Democrats have done here? That is going to be a very interesting thing to watch. I think that there is just looking at some of the speakers, um, some of the non-political speakers that they brought in, people like the the kid who uh, the the MAGA hat wearing kid who got into a confrontation on, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. with a Native American activist. The, uh, the couple in, from St. Louis who pointed guns at protesters. I think there's someone who's going to speak, a, a family of a police officer who was killed in relation to one of the protests. There's, a, there's definitely going to be a, a level of grievance, I think, that I was going to say, activate. It, it's grievance and guns. <laughs> nice alliteration. I mean, <laughs> I mean the gun, well, I'm, I mean, the, the St. Louis couple yeah. who were pointing their guns at the Black Lives Matters protesters. You know, look, I mean, what are the states that Trump needs to keep in his column, you know, which seem to be slipping away? Place like Pennsylvania, you know, Western Pennsylvania, where like the Second Amendment is still hugely important to Republican voters. Places in Wisconsin. Can I just point something out? You know, we had the amazing news yesterday of the arrest of Steve Bannon and his indictment for defrauding a We Build the Wall fundraising campaign, uh, siphoning off um, large chunks of the $25 million that was raised for personal use of him and his cronies. And two weeks ago, we had the NRA charged with the, the, those four NRA leaders, starting with Wayne LaPierre, charged with doing the exact same thing on an even greater scale, ripping off, defrauding the NRA, using funds for personal expenses. It seems that, you know, there is a a trend here. If we were back at Newsweek, we, we'd have a trend cover story. Of, we need um, a third one. We need a third one. I, I'll, I'm sure we can find it, but um, we're on the verge of a uh, fraudster cover. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I, you know, if it were, uh, I can imagine Democrats cutting ads in some of these key districts and swing states where those, you know, where, where the wall was part of Trump's appeal, where guns were part of Trump's appeal and saying, you know, they've lied, they've cheated, they haven't delivered on those things. They're just out to enrich themselves. They're playing you, right? I, I, I think we could. I think we can get that third one if you throw in Paul Manafort and maybe Michael Cohen. I, I think there's enough material there. I was just going to say, since we like to make sure we're giving you know, the other side a chance to respond, I do want to note that uh, Steve Bannon on his podcast has made his first comments about these charges, which he's oh, called. What does he say? 
I'm sure you'll all be shocked to hear that he calls it a political hit job. And, th- <laughs> and then he compared himself to the honey badger and said he won't stop fighting. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's a metaphor he's been using for some time. Anyway, well, listen, uh, Andrew, we will check back with you next week to get your take on how the Republicans did and how they countered this. And in the meantime, uh, we have Senator Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the U.S. Senate, coming up as our guest. So let's get on with the pod. We now have with us Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. So big night last night with uh, Joe Biden's acceptance speech. Give us your takeaway. I've heard 100 Biden speeches, maybe 200. Maybe it was 100 that felt like 200. (laughs) Uh, But I will tell you, it's his best. It was his best performance I've ever seen. And I think he was pitch perfect in it. And I think he hit all the, the points that we tried to put together in the four days of the campaign. What, great, what, tell uh, us what what impressed you about it? What themes that he hit that you thought were significant? The underlying theme of this whole convention was we have a candidate who is good and decent and honest and sensible, and they do not. And he, he, he went zeroed in, I think, on an issue which Republicans better not overlook. When the American people start talking about their worries, Three out of four of them say, we think things are going to get worse before they get better. And top of the list is not unemployment. Top of the list is the coronavirus. They just don't believe this president has handled this well. And the numbers tell the story. You know, this president has basically said it's going to go away. It's not a problem. Don't waste any time worrying about it. He ignored the, exp- uh, the advice of experts. He didn't lead as a, a Franklin Roosevelt into World War II type leader. He just didn't do anything. And now we're at a point where we sadly have the worst numbers in the world of any nation, the worst numbers in the world. And the American people sense that. Joe addressed it directly, looked straight into the camera and said, I'm going to take this on from day one. He knows that's where you start as president. Senator, you have undoubtedly been to many conventions in your long career, all of them until now in person. Now that we've been through our first virtual convention, I'm curious what worked, what maybe didn't work as well for you. Tell us about that. I think this is the future when it comes to conventions. Let's face it, conventions go back in history over 150 years, and we all kind of know uh, what to expect from a convention. Thousands of people coming in from all over the United States to uh, act crazy, put on nutty hats and sashes and buttons and stay up late, scream and shout and Uh, maybe drink and eat a little bit too much. Those days, I think, are over. When they started ending, when we stopped getting gavel-to-gavel coverage by the media, they have many other things to entertain people with other than politicians talking to themselves. So I think what we've got to do is to accept this is the future. This is the reality. Uh, And there are parts of it that that were really good. You know, I I think the roll call of the states was a great moment. You know, I'm, I'm glad to see the Calamari comeback of the state of Rhode Island, which most people point to as a highlight of the roll calls. And I think it went through rather smoothly, giving each of them two or three minutes to do it. I, I thought the speeches, you know, I'm a political animal, and I watched many more than most people would. And I thought they were good quality and really reflected the length and breadth of the Democratic Party. The key speeches, um, Michelle, Barack, really made a difference. Of course, uh, Kamala is uh, very popular and should be. And then Dr. Jill Biden and Joe, uh, I think they closed the deal. 
I really, I really think it was a powerful four nights for those of us who were interested in it, and I hope more people will be. Uh, do you think you're going to get the kind of bump that uh, parties traditionally get after their conventions, uh, given the lack of hoopla, balloons, confetti, and all that? that... Well, I, you know, it's interesting. You know, I remember the Mondale bump. You know, he was on his way to the presidency, and it disappeared. You know, the Dukakis bump disappeared. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fleeting fame when you have a competing convention and three months to go. But this is a different thing. I, I, you, know, I, you know this, and everybody should. The timetable for this presidential election in Illinois starts September 24th, not November 3rd or 2nd. September 24th is when the ballots are mailed back to people, and we are telling them far and wide, turn them in quickly. So if you're going to start campaigning, you better start at least in early September in terms of your media message and be prepared for uh, more than half of the voters uh, to use this approach, uh, the mail-in ballots. So I think it helps. Uh, I think we brought it together. We showed we're a unified party. We have a message, a clear contrast. Uh, I, am, I am anxious to see what the Republicans do with their four days next week. Uh, I think it'll be hard for them to, to really compete or match what we put together. Are you going to get a uh, deal in the Senate for further financial assistance for people suffering during the economic recession? It depends on two things. If Donald Trump thinks his poll numbers are scary, he's going to want to get back to the table as quickly as possible so he can sign all those millions of checks and, and renew the unemployment benefits. And the second one, if Mitch McConnell is getting his uh, fanny chewed out in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and he has members calling in from all over the country worried about re-election of incumbent Republicans, maybe he'll show up and actually come to the table and negotiate. But it'll take that uh, in the first week of September for us to turn it around. Senator, we had Congresswoman Debbie Dingell on the uh, the podcast the other day from Michigan, and she had a warning for uh, the Democrats, and that is she's hearing more and more concern among her constituents about the spike in violence in major American cities and um, some of the violence that has grown out of the protests. And, I, you know, look, in Chicago, you've had a really dramatic increase increase in homicides and uh, and violence. I think it's the highest in 28 years. And just today, we have several Chicago aldermen calling for a state of emergency in the city and to have the governor call in the National Guard. Do you concur that uh, drastic measures like that are needed? And is this a concern uh, that you have that uh, the president's going to be able to use this as a wedge issue in the election? We'll certainly try. He's made it clear he wants to be the law and order president to, to respond to violence in the streets, but he's overplayed his hand. He did it in Lafayette Park when he called in the military to clear the way for him to display his Bible upside down. Certainly in Portland, Oregon, the, the camouflage members of the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security and unmarked cars, he overplayed his hand. It is true that we have issues of uh, domestic uh, uh, unrest in some cities. In the city of Chicago, when I spoke to the White House, people in the White House who still take my t call, and they said, well, what should be done? I said, well, first, we are washing guns. For goodness sakes, when is this president ever going to stand up and say we want to keep this avalanche of guns in the hands of kids, bring it to an end? And they said, well, if you hadn't impeached us, we would have done it. <laughs> it's not much of an answer these days. But it starts with gun legislation, and this, uh, this president, Republicans of Congress, are loath to even, even consider it. Uh, secondly, we've got to get to the heart of the issue here. 
you're dealing with uh, trauma-induced uh, activity. Uh, we have young people who at a very early age are exposed to things which many of us would, even, would not even consider as a possibility in our childhood. And it's no surprise it has an impact on them unless there's an intervention. So the things that need to be done, economic things that need to be done, counseling and so forth, it's a long-term answer. In the meantime, this notion will bring in the National Guard and that'll take care of the problem. That is naive. In fact, it's ridiculous. Posting a National Guard soldier with a rifle on a corner, what is he supposed to do? You know, it really is not even going to have the impact people wish. I'm just looking. Ray Lopez, a Walderman in the 15th Ward in Chicago, said today, the perception of Chicago is we are spiraling out of control. Lopez is an interesting fellow. I count him as a friend, but he is a kind of a maverick status on the city council and rather vocal opponent of the incumbent mayor. But I don't think it's spiraling out of control, but it's certainly, uh, even though violent crime is down from where it was a few years ago, it's still way too high, unacceptable levels. And I think the mayor has to do more in using the police force. I mean, this notion that they can go downtown and loot for two or three different occasions just is unacceptable conduct. We've got to have quicker responses, closing streets if necessary, quick arrests, and people have to know there's a price to pay. What's happening with this looting is not what you think. It isn't like a Black Lives Matter parade that got out of control. It is organized to the point where they bring in rental trucks and pickup trucks on the side streets near Michigan Avenue, breaking the windows and carrying out TVs and other things and loading them up in the trucks. It's an organized effort by some people that are engaged, as Reverend Jackson said, in criminality. This is not political protest. It's criminality. And we have to be much more uh, effective in dealing with it. Uh, and yet the, it. the chant that grew out of the Black Lives Matter protests, defund the police, is one that, uh, you know, sticks in people's and voters' minds. What do you say to those people who have been chanting and demanding defund the police? If you take it on its face, it's mindless. The notion that we're going to dial 911 and no one answers or that there's a domestic dis dispute next door to me to a, with a fellow who owns a gun, who am I going to call? I'm going to call the police. and I want to have good, effective police come and answer. And I will tell you, the, the bottom line is this. The vast majority of law enforcement officials that I've known throughout my life and career are good, honest, uh, civic-minded people who want to do the right thing. They are not racist. But in their ranks are people who abuse the badge and abuse the gun. And we've seen it. We saw it up in, in, in Minneapolis on the street uh, when George Floyd lost his life. So the bottom line of defunding the police, moving some of the police funds into dealing with mental illness, which is a, a large part of the complaints that police receive during the course of a day. Makes sense to me, yes. Do I wanna transfer funds for more counseling and, and dealing with mental illness? Of course I do. I think it's more effective to keep the peace than to send in a policeman who may have little or no experience in that area. Mm -hmm. Senator, uh, you mentioned before that September 24th is the date when the election really begins because uh, mail-in ballots will be sent out to voters in, in Illinois. There is a lot of anxiety about voting this time around, particularly because uh, of the number of, of mail-in ballots. As we speak right now, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is testifying, lots of questions about um, interfering with the Postal Service, but also in primary elections, like in New York State, it took many, many weeks to get results in, you know, in one, in one election. So 
How confident are you right now, you can talk about Illinois, but also nationally, that the election will will be able to go off smoothly? Uh, We will have results relatively soon after the election. Uh, How much concern do you have about all of those issues? Well, let me give you an example. In the last presidential election in Illinois, I had about five and a half million votes cast, 400,000 more by mail-in ballots. We anticipate that number will increase in this election to two million. 2 million out of close to 6 million ballots to be cast. That's the projection. So it's a five-fold increase in mail-in ballots. So yesterday, Senator Duckworth and I brought in the postal officials, a man named Justin Glass, who is a national official for the 2020 election coordination, and asked him point blank, you know, is this a problem? He says not to worry. He says we have the capacity to handle this. All of the political mail comprises about two to five percent of the mail that the post office deals with. So we're not going to be overwhelmed when it comes to ballots, even if there's a substantial increase. It is true that we're operating today at levels that are comparable to the Christmas holiday season, which is the most uh, the busiest month of the year for the post office. But he believes they have adequate overtime equipment and so forth. So why are we worried? Well, we're worried because a man named DeJoy, who happened to be a multi-million dollar contributor to this president, ended up being postmaster general. The first and most political appointment, you have to go back to Larry O'Brien, I guess, in the 1960s to see such a political appointment. And we're worried. This man is not, has, doesn't have a background with the post office. And the first thing he comes in and says, let's do business principles. It's called the Postal Service, Mr. DeJoy. It's not called the Postal Company. It's not a profit and loss statement at the end of the day. It's serving a constitutional responsibility to the American people. And their concern, incidentally, is not ballots. It's pills. It's medications. It's things that they count on coming through the mail. So they gave us kind of a whistling past the graveyard report yesterday. We're likely to hear the same thing to Congress. And when this president gloats over the fact that a mismanaged postal service may slow down paper ballots, you bet we're worried. Yesterday, we had former Attorney General Eric Holder on the podcast, and uh, he said that uh, he believes absolutely that there ought to be a criminal investigation into into Lewis uh, DeJoy for allegations of tampering with the mail, essentially. Uh, would you agree with that? You know, that may come, but it's not going to serve our purposes. We have 75 days left here. Uh, and anything done on a criminal basis is going to take a long, long period of time. More importantly to me, I want the Inspector General of the Postal Service crawling all over Mr. DeJoy and his decisions. Uh, When they say to us, we've got plenty of overtime and plenty of equipment, I'd like somebody who knows what to look for, uh, take a look over his shoulder. Your, Your fundamental question, though, is important, and let's get to it. And that is, what can we expect in terms of the results of the election, and when will we know? It depends, of course, on the, on the measure of victory from one side to the other, and it depends on the Electoral College fulcrum states. We're talking about Iowa and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida and a few others that really will, perhaps Arizona, that will decide this election. And if they are close, yes, it will take days, perhaps weeks, before we get the final vote totals. If it's a lopsided election, it may make no difference. But if it's close, we may be waiting for a while. Senator, there's getting the ballots in the hands of people, but there's also the issue of counting mail-in ballots. We saw in that New York primary in June, it took months to tabulate all those mail-in ballots. The races were undecided for something like three months after. It does raise questions about whether the states and counties are really equipped to handle this many mail-in ballots. 
two things I'll say. First is uh, we have been pushing on the Democratic side with Nancy Pelosi for money to go to election authorities uh, so that they can hire the people to process the ballots in a reliable, orderly way. It's going to take more people. Five-fold increase in mail-in ballots in Illinois, for example. You just need more people to process them, to actually move them through the machines and count them. So that's part of it. The second thing is, I did something a couple weeks ago that didn't get a lot of press attention, but it was only the second time in my congressional career that I introduced a proposed constitutional amendment. If you ask most American people, does the Constitution guarantee your right to vote? They say, of course it does. That's so basic. Why would you ask a question that silly? And the answer is, of course it does not. There is no guarantee of the right to vote in the United States Constitution, and I think there should be. If we made it clear that this is a decision that we make each uh, election cycle that is critical to a democracy, and anyone who infringes on it, whether it's a postmaster general or the legislature of a state, is going to face strict scrutiny in the Supreme Court, then we have a better chance to make sure more Americans get a chance to vote. How does this differ from the 15th Amendment? Well, it basically goes a step beyond that. Established stand, uh, freestanding establishes uh, the, the right to vote and establishes the standard, the strict scrutiny standard, so that it isn't just a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it says, you know, the presumption is I have a right to vote. You want to take it away? You'd better have a pretty compelling reason to do it. One more vote question for the senator. How do you plan to vote? On what? How do, how do you plan to vote in this oh, election? Oh, actually, the process. Well, my yes. wife and I discussed that yesterday, and I, I think I will order a ballot and probably turn it in in person, which you can do starting on September the 24th or 5th in Illinois. And we were told yesterday, for example, just to put in perspective, the Postal Service said, you want to play it safe with the post office and the mail-in ballot? Don't uh, request a ballot any later than October 19th. Don't mail it back to us any later than October 27th if you want to make sure that it's going to be postmarked on or before so November you're, the 3rd. So you're going to request a mail-in ballot and then personally deliver it to where? the uh, County uh, clerk. County, county clerk. clerk. Downstate county. Sangamon County. Okay. Once left. Okay, Senator. <laughs> Senator, let's talk about the fight for the control of the Senate. Democrats need either three or four seats to flip, depending on who wins the presidential election. Which races are you looking at most closely in terms of the Democrats having the best chance of, of winning back the Senate? In terms of incumbents, Gary Peters is looking stronger in Michigan, and we're not taking it for granted, but he looks uh, like he'll be reelected. Doug Jones is our miracle baby who came through, and what an amazing senator he's been from Alabama. Do you uh, think he's going to win that race? I, I Listen, I'll do everything in my power to help him win. He's, he is a great senator. I hope the people of Alabama understand that. But he is the biggest challenge among our incumbents, and Gary Peters would be second. Then when it comes to picking up seats, I think our best chances are Arizona and Colorado and North Carolina, probably Maine, Iowa. Uh, I put Montana on that list. Kansas uh, is an outside possibility. Texas is an outside possibility. I mean, we have some options there that most people didn't appreciate. Our field of opportunity as Democrats, much larger than what we, I didn't mention Alaska, we have a field of opportunity much larger than we first anticipated. I didn't hear you putting uh, South Carolina on that list. Jamie Harrison have a chance of beating Lindsey Graham? Uh, Jamie's a great candidate. It's a tough state for a Democrat to win. I guess you've got to go back to Fritz Hollings for the last time that we elected a Democratic senator there. But he really is getting attention across the country. He's a quality candidate. 
One other question on the Senate. Nancy Pelosi yesterday endorsed Joe Kennedy in that Senate race in Massachusetts over Ed Markey. Now, you're a colleague of Ed Markey's in the Senate. Do you have a preference in that race? I do have a preference, and it's Ed Markey. And I'm not surprised that that Nancy would end up supporting a a member of her own House Democratic Caucus. There may have been other reasons, but that stands to reason that she would do that. Ed Markey's a friend, colleague. I've served with him in the House and the Senate. He really makes a significant contribution to the U.S. Senate. It's a very close race. Senator, uh, the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, was uh, doing a round of talk shows uh, this morning and um, talked about how uh, the COVID-19 is going to go away soon. He said, um, you know, we've had remarkable progress in the last couple of weeks. What's your uh, reaction to that? It seems we've stood and talked like this before. We have heard this now for month after weary month as the numbers on the scoreboard tell the story. Sadly, the president says it is what it is, but what it is is just heartbreaking. 170,000 Americans who've lost their lives, 5 million who've been infected. We have 4% of the world's population, 20% of the COVID-19 deaths. You take a look at the situation, the American people get it. When this president is dreaming up new theories of medical quackery to solve this, telling people not to worry, it's going to go away in sunlight. You know, the American people get it. This president doesn't have a clue when it comes to dealing with COVID-19, and he won't listen to experts who do. Uh, And the American people are fed up with it. Their lives have been compromised because of this pandemic, and the president doesn't seem to want to show the leadership we need. You know, get the president to wear a mask. What a big ask that is. And it took months before he finally did it, and he couldn't go into a veteran's hospital if he failed to do it. And yet he could have set an example for this country. Instead of fistfights in supermarkets over who's wearing a mask, it ought to just be standard across the United States. It's a good way to break the back of this pandemic. Well, just picking up on that, I did. This didn't get a lot of attention last night, but Biden did call for a nationwide mask mandate in that speech. And I just wonder, what does that as a practical matter mean? If it's a national mandate from the president of the United States, who enforces it? How does that work? Well, you know, let me say this. The numbers are compelling. Eighty percent of the American people happen to agree with Joe Biden and disagree with Donald Trump on this issue of wearing masks. They don't believe it is a terrible imposition. It's common sense to protect yourself and the people around you. How do we enforce it? Well, we're not going to wander around with U.S. Marshals enforcing a mask policy, a national mask policy. But we'll say to retailers and others that people not only have to wear a mask as they enter the store, but you got to tell them inside the store that the rules still apply. And if you want to check out, you better be wearing a mask. Major stores have already done that. Walmart has done it, for goodness sakes. It's not a radical notion. It's the president who has turned it into a political issue you know, hollering, liberate Michigan, liberate Wisconsin, reopen the economy, don't wear a mask if you don't want to. You know, that to me has created a political fight in what is clearly a public health issue. Well, I actually thought Biden's line was pretty good last night, which is wearing a mask is an act of patriotism. But we had J.B. Pritzker, your governor, on our podcast. I believe he issued a, a mandate, a mask mandate for Illinois. Is that right? In different sections of the state, he divided it up and it depended on the incidence of infection. And is it working? Well, it is. It's interesting. You know, in Chicago, I went into Midway Airport several times over the last month or two. Every person in the airport, save one, was wearing a mask. I mean, it was, it was complete cooperation as far as I'm concerned. Now, if I come downstate here uh, to a hardware store 
and go inside and see a lot of white males, many of them are thumbing their nose at the notion from the start. And unless you have some enforcement, and I salute Walmart, for example, uh, that has a greeter outside saying thank you for wearing a mask when people sh uh, show up, unless you have a real conscious policy by the company, uh, I'm afraid it isn't pushed very hard in this part of the state. Hey, I got one more Illinois question for you. The Speaker of the Illinois House, Michael Madigan, also the chairman of the Illinois Democratic Party, has been implicated in a uh, pay-to-play corruption scheme uh, in a recent indictment brought by the Justice Department. Should he resign? Well, it's, it's a different challenge for Senator Duckworth and myself than most. We actually chose the uh, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District, John Losh, He's a Republican, but uh, he passed uh, our uh, uh, investigation, if you call it that, uh, scrutiny of his background, a real professional law enforcement uh, individual. And we said to him, once you get this job, it's yours. We're not going to uh, be cheering you or condemning you. Do it and do it professionally. I believe he has. So what stage are we? We clearly have a major investigation and allegations that are very, very serious. No charges have been leveled uh, on the speaker at this point. Uh, and I suppose, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to give him that, that presumption until it actually happens. Last question for me. We have, I don't know how many days left until November 3rd. Um, but, 75 or so. Uh, there you go. <laughs> what will you be doing personally? Illinois is not really in play, but what will you be doing personally to get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected? That's a darn good question. And the only conversation <laughs> I had with Joe uh, several weeks ago uh, really reflected the frustration we both felt. Listen, genetically, I'm ready to wander into a crowd of strangers and shake every hand in sight and pass out buttons and brochures. That's what I do. I mean, it's instinctive. And now I can't do it because of this pandemic. He faces the same frustration. So I'm doing a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of telephone conferences, a lot of outreach, much more than I've ever done uh, this way in the past. It really is an effort to try to substitute personal campaigning, hand-to-hand -hand campaigning, with something that's a little safer in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, I sent a letter to Steve Rochetti this morning, an email, I should say, and basically said, uh, I'm, I'm on board. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Uh, one of my first assignments from them this week was to do a Fox TV show. <laughs> so I said, if that's what you need, I'll do it. Well, I was going to say, from our, from Isakoff's and my perspective, this is a good thing because we get great guests like you on the podcast. So uh, we will we will uh, ask. You I got that. I got one last question for the senator, uh, and neglected to mention the introduction. You are the Senate Democratic Whip, the number two Democrat in the uh, Senate. If your forecast that you're going to retake control of the Senate comes true, you're going to do away with the filibuster. All the cards are on the table. Uh, Chuck Schumer made that clear yesterday. And a lot of us have been thinking about this, uh, and it boils down to this. The Senate has become dysfunctional under Mitch McConnell because of his passionate commitment to filling every federal judicial vacancy with these uh, ideologues that they uh, dream up with the Federalist Society. We've done nothing. Last year in 2019, the United States Senate, in the entire calendar year, we considered on the floor of the United States Senate 22 amendments. 22 in an entire year. And six of them were laughers introduced by Rand Paul with a gun to our heads. You can't go home unless you give me a vote. I mean, that is the disintegration of the Senate before our eyes. There are many of us who ran, run and ran for public office to do something. If the Senate rules stop us from doing something, we've got to take a look at the rules. And I don't rule out the filibusters on the table in terms of reform.
If Joe Biden wins, though, uh, I believe he has said that he is not in favor of taking away the filibuster. Will he have a voice in this decision? Well, uh, he will. Uh, to this uh, extent, you need to have a majority uh, to change the Senate rules uh, under this expedited procedure. And you need the vice president. Uh, it will be Kamala Harris, we hope, at that point. So certainly she's going to consult with her president before that decision is made. But I think Joe has, has expressed an openness. Listen, I introduced the DREAM Act 19 years ago. 19 years ago. It's still not the law of the land. I passed it in the Senate several times with majority votes. I can never beat the filibuster. Never. That's a civil rights and human rights issue as far as I'm concerned. I'm frustrated as hell. And there are 800,000, maybe 2 million lives in the balance here. There comes a point where we've got to say, all right, it's the 21st century. Let's get on board here. Let's do something that really is significant so the Senate can be significant. It sure sounds like more than it being on the table, you are in favor of eliminating the filibuster. Well, I can tell you that's where I'm leaning. The alternative is if someone comes up with an approach uh, that is more reasonable than the current system, I'm open to it. But I I will tell you, I've been frustrated for a hell of a long time because of this filibuster. Well, uh, Senator, it sounds like we'll have uh, could have a, a juicy issue to cover if the Democrats retake control of the Senate, the debate over the uh, filibuster. Uh, but listen, I want to thank you for joining us uh, on Skullduggery, and uh, we hope to have you back. Looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody.